0: If you want to close out this year strong and start next year even stronger, then you may want to check out the Same Side Selling Academy six-week immersion program starting on October 10th. It's going to be limited to a small number of people, and it's hopefully a group that's going to be highly engaged, focused on same-side selling, and how to grow your business. Just go to samesidesellingacademy.com to sign up. Hey, it's Ian Altman. Thanks for being here. Today's guest is Dan McGinn. Dan is a senior editor at Harvard Business Review and the author of a book I just finished reading called Psyched Up, How the Science of Mental Preparation Can Help You Succeed. We're going to talk about the biggest mistakes that people make when it comes to getting themselves psyched up or helping to psych up their teams. We'll talk about how you should prepare for critical moments and even talk about things like... Gee, when you're in a stressful situation, is the best thing to do calm down or should you do something else? You're going to learn a ton. There's a lot of really interesting stuff you're going to hear from Dan McGinn. Dan McGinn, welcome to the show. Hi, Ian. So, I mean, I got to tell you that when I picked up Psyched Up and I started reading it, it really captivated me in a lot of different areas and gave me just – a lot of great information about how people could and should prepare themselves, get other people motivated. And before we dive into things that you saw in your research on what people should be doing, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see people make when it comes to trying to motivate themselves or others? And really a lot of it, I know you had a ton of research. So what are the biggest
1: mistakes that you saw? So I think I would focus on two things there. So number one, um, If we think about what an athlete does before performing, whether it's a professional football player or an Olympic athlete, chances are they have some sort of a plan before the game. Not only are they stretching their muscles, they're, you know, Focusing on certain thoughts or actions. They have a pre-performance ritual. They know how to get psyched up So the biggest mistake I would see people who are not in athletics people who are kind of in a more professional setting doing is number one Not having any plan at all So if you're going into a job interview or going to pitch a VC and you're sitting in the waiting room sitting there being nervous That's a sign that you don't have a plan. So, you know, not having any of these things is probably number one number two a lot of people Focus on the downside risk. You know, it's sort of my natural inclination to do this as well. You focus on, okay, you know, I'm about to go on Ian Altman's podcast. What's the worst thing that could happen? And then you sort of tell yourself, oh, well, even if that happened, it wouldn't be so bad after all. They call that defensive pessimism. And it's a kind of a rationalization strategy that people use to try to make themselves not be nervous, to try to reduce the stakes. The problem is you're setting yourself up for failure. You're thinking about, what if I go on Ian's podcast and I really, bomb when the right thing to be thinking in that scenario is what if I go on Ian's podcast and I totally crush it? You know, you want to be thinking about the positive. So those are probably the two things, not having a plan or framing things in the negative.
0: It's funny that you talk about this defensive pessimism. I I've got a 18 year old daughter and she's one of these kids who's really an overachiever academically. And very often, like when she, when she was applying to college, it's like, well, I'm not getting it into any school. And it's like, well, I appreciate you saying that, but you're probably getting into almost every school you apply to, and we couldn't figure it out until I talked to a psychologist buddy of mine. And he's like, yeah, she's just being a protectionist. She's just trying to play devil's advocate, and that way any news she gets is always good news, but she's not really approaching it and embracing it and leaning in realistically. She's being more pessimistic or skeptical to prepare herself for the positive side. So is is that part of what goes on?
1: Yeah, it's uh she's trying to preemptively insulate herself from any disappointment she might feel. And you know, that intuitively and logically that has some merit to it. The problem is and if I guess if it's the kind of thing where if it's the kind of event that you have really no control out of over say so say you or I were playing the powerball tonight. If we tell ourselves we're not going to win the Powerball. Well, that's not really going to hurt anything because the outcome of the Powerball has nothing to do with how we perform. You know, It's just a random event over which we have no control. Hey, Dan, hold
0: on. There's people who are pretty superstitious who are thinking, no, no, Dan is making stuff up right now because I know my lucky rabbit's foot is the key.
1: <laughs> well, more power to those people. But I think in a performance setting, so uh, you and I are talking on a Thursday. On Saturday, I'm playing in a golf tournament. And I'm a horrible golfer, and about half of the holes have water on the right. And so, when I go up and make that tee shot, I could be thinking to myself, "Don't hit it in the water." That's just not—you know—all the research shows that's not a good thing to say because it's—it's it's sort of reinforcing that thought. What you want to think is positive things. Hit it to the center. So, in general, in a performance setting, thinking about what you do want to do as opposed to what you don't want to do is going to generally lead to better outcomes.
0: Excellent. All right. And and so that's something that, even whether it's salespeople, whether it's business people, walking into a meeting, that idea of, well, this meeting could go horribly, instead, maybe ask yourself, well, what are the two, th- two or three things that would make this meeting go well? Instead of, well, you know, these are the things that could happen that would make it go horribly.
1: Yeah. In terms of um, prepping for meetings, especially in a sales context where, you you know even if every meeting is different and every customer is different and one is more important than the next, you know there's some similarities to to the way you're handling these meetings. One of the my favorite techniques for situations like that is not to project forward and focus on the event and it going well. I actually like to reflect backwards and think about my greatest hits. So if I were a salesperson and I were about to call on the client that is going to make or break this quarter for me. I would think back very specifically, as you know, as vividly as I can, almost like you're watching a highlight film on ESPN, and think about the time when you just crushed that sales call, and really sort of vividly reflect on that. You know, before I come on to a show like today, I'll actually go back and listen to my best audio interview ever, where they, you know, they really edited me and buffed me up so I sounded really <laughs> articulate. Um, I think looking back on the times when you really. We're at your best professionally and trying to find a way to reflect on that in a very focused way right before you go into the room. That can be a very good psych up technique in that kind of situation.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I remember when I was in college, I had a professor who was a physical education teacher and I wasn't a phys ed student. But when you're a freshman, you're like, you mean I can take a class like this and it doesn't matter? And the guy taught tennis. And for the first month, he taught tennis without a tennis ball. And it was just all visualization for everybody. And then four weeks into it where no one, no one in the class had, had hit a ball and there were some people who had never played tennis before, he introduced, introduced the tennis ball. And I was amazed at how well people did who had never played tennis before. And his comment was, well, they didn't experience any negative outcomes because in their mind visually every ball was perfect. Now we introduce a ball and once they get the idea of the, of the pace of the ball – They were executing the strokes. It was kind of a cool thing to see.
1: Yeah. I mean the power of visualization, there's been a lot of research that suggests – it's it's a technique that can really help people improve their outcomes um so i've never heard of that specific one before and it you know definitely sounds kind of unconventional um but if it works for people more power to them that's one of the messages throughout this book really is that um there's a lot of research and there's a lot of guidance that comes from the research but every person is different and you really need to find the techniques that work for you because what works for you probably won't work for me we're all different when it comes to these techniques
0: and it's one of the things I loved about the book is that there were so many different examples where you have you have examples of surgeons, athletes, Jerry Seinfeld, performers, um, Carly Simon, Wade Boggs. I mean, it's just the full breadth of everything from students to you know to household names. What are some of the what are some of the things that you found the most interesting in your research?
1: So one of the chapters in the book looks at. Pre-performance routines, rituals, and superstitions, which are all sort of related kinds of things, but there's a little bit of difference to them all. Um, And the basic research there is, number one, that people who do the same thing every time before they perform, whether you're kicking a soccer goal or shooting a dart or whether it's some kind of a mental performance activity, doing a math test, people who have a set of rituals they do before performing generally do better, number one. If you don't have a set of rituals and someone teaches you or you learn how to do them, it'll probably help you improve a bit. And that some of these things may not make sense, Some, especially when it comes into superstition. Uh, there's no reason that if Stephen Colbert chews on a certain brand of Big Pen before his stand-up routine, it's going to be better. But he thinks it does, so he has his staff buy up all the Big Pen's they can find to help his superstition. Um, There's no reason logically why the fact that I typed this book on a computer keyboard that once belonged to Malcolm Gladwell would make it a better book. But if it increases my confidence when I sit down to write, then maybe it did make it a better book. So there's, you know, you need to look beyond the logic and look at what helps people feel empowered and confident.
0: Yeah, Dan, you know, see, that's crazy. There's no way that keyboard could have any impact whatsoever. But when I write my next book, I Might ask you to borrow that
1: <laughs> I, you wouldn't be the first person who's asked you know it, I, I've said if the book doesn't sell as well as I hope, I may start renting this keyboard out as an alternative revenue stream
0: <laughs> I understand, although I do remember reading that it's missing a key, so you know it could be a little awkward if I read a whole book and it never has the letter "s" in it.
1: Well, it's missing the down key, and that's why there's a mouse. You know, okay. use the mouse instead.
0: Oh, in that case, yeah, in that case, send it over. That'd be great. And I and I thought it was interesting some of the some of the superstitions when I was reading about uh, what was it, Wade Boggs, where he he scratched a, a Jewish chai, the symbol for for life and and good luck, into the dirt before his at bats. And I thought to myself, wow, that's really great. I had no idea that Wade Boggs was Jewish. And then you said, well, he's not, which makes it all the funnier.
1: Yeah, it's just what he was probably one of the more ritualistic athletes. Uh he and people would actually mess with him. So he ate chicken before every game. He did this carving in the dirt thing. One of his rituals was he liked to run sprints on the field exactly 17 minutes before the first pitch. And what happened with that is that the opposing teams caught on to the fact that he was very obsessive about the fact that it was 17 minutes. So they would start manipulating the clocks in the stadium so that they would go from 20 minutes before the game and then jump it right to 15 minutes before the game just to mess with him so that he would miss his 17 minute mark. So, you know, th- that sort of illustrates there's a danger if you get a little bit too hyper focused on these rituals, you might open yourself up to problems.
0: Sure. And, and Dan, one of the things that I often will hear from people is they'll say, Yeah, well, before I did this, before I went on the sales call, before I, I went on stage, I, I was really anxious. So, what should I do? And people say to them, Well, you should totally calm down. But I know you write about the fact that that isn't
1: necessarily the right answers. C- can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So, you know, we're we're still, even though we're modern 21st century humans, we're still biologic creatures and we've been programmed by evolution with this fight or flight instinct. You know, when we perceive a threat, our body floods with adrenaline. It makes us feel, you know, sweaty and short of breath and nervous and all these sorts of things, it, you know. Even if you're not being chased by a tiger, going into an important sales call, that can feel like a threat to you. So it, when you're feeling nervous, it's your body and your chemistry that's making that happen. It's not its not real simple to sort of turn that off. There's research in a technique called reappraisal that looks at instead of trying to be calm, if you can channel that nervousness into excitement, which is still a highly agitated state, but it's a more positively oriented one. Um, so they've done studies where they have people do a performance activity and beforehand, some group will say, I'm nervous. Some group will say, I'm excited. And every time, the groups that just say, I'm excited, do markedly better. So it's trying to reframe that emotion a little bit.
0: Yeah, well, and, and that was something that really caught my attention when I was reading the book is this notion of you didn't actually do anything to change their situation other than one group said, hey, I'm excited. And the other group said, I'm anxious. And other than that, the conditions were the same, yet the group that that did that reappraisal and called it excitement instead of anxiousness outperformed everybody else. I mean that to me really caught my attention.
1: Yeah, it is. It does show how that very simple strategy change and reorientation can make a big difference and – since the book came out and I've been talking to a lot of people while promoting it. One of the interesting thing is when I run into people who've done a lot of public speaking or a lot of presenting or done a Ted talk, a lot of them, you know, they don't know what reappraisal is. They've never read this research, but they naturally have that kind of orientation that, you know, instead of looking at, uh, an event that, where they need to perform as a burden or a risk or, um, uh, a task at which they might fail, they really embrace it as an opportunity. They look at the upside, and they do just sort of naturally think about it as an exciting thing, as opposed to a nervous-making thing.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I speak at about sixty to seventy events a year, and and the, the way I always look at it is, wow, I'm I'm actually really excited to have the impact I know I can have on this audience. And Michael and Amy Port, Michael Port wrote a book called To Steal the Show. Uh, or rather, steal the show, and they have a um, they, they have an event called Heroic Public Speaking. And at their event, one of the things he always shares with people is: look, when you get nervous, it's because you're thinking of how people are judging you, and instead, you should think about how you're impacting the audience, and then you're not thinking about them judging you. You're thinking about how you can impact the people who are there, and that'll that'll change your mindset. And maybe that's just another form of reappraisal at that point.
1: Yeah, it's. Um I like that idea. I've never heard that before, but it's a really interesting piece of advice because um it's take it's it's emphasizing the idea that it's not all about you and it's reorienting towards the audience and what they can get out of it, which is where your your mindset should be in the first place, you know. It's it's more about what's the payoff for them. You're going to give a better speech if you focus on the audience and their takeaways as opposed to how you're feeling about it anyway. So it's great advice on a number of levels.
0: Yeah, I, I'd love for you to share the story about um Kageyama and Juilliard and what he does in his performance class. Because the whole the whole idea of here's this here's this big culminating test for everybody and then the games he plays is just I mean a master class in in psychological preparation. So can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Sure. So one of the most fun days I spent when I was reporting the book was I went to New York City to the Juilliard Music School and I spent uh, a day with a guy named Noah Kageyama, who he was a, a going to be a professional violinist. He's a you know, world class violin player. He went to Juilliard himself, but he became much more interested in the psychology than the music. So he went and got a PhD in psychology. And for years now, he has taught a semester long course at Juilliard about how musicians can deal with the anxiety and the nerves of auditions. When you're auditioning for a big city orchestra, the odds are maybe one out of 200 people will get picked. And this is how you make your livelihood. It- audition nervousness is a big factor for them. He teaches them all sorts of techniques during the semester and then at the end of the semester he tells them that for their final exam which is going to count for 50% of their grade they need to go up to an audition room and play in front of these three professional judges. What he doesn't tell them is he's programmed it so that everything that can go wrong does go wrong. You know, the practice room, he puts a, an AM radio in the wall badly tuned so you can't really practice in the practice room. The piano he puts ping pong balls into it. So it's missounding notes all the time. Um, he, you know, he might turn a fan on so that your sheet music blows around while you're trying to play. It sounds like something out of like a a sitcom movie or something. Um, but the whole test is when something goes wrong, can you center yourself? Can you use these techniques that he's caught to sort of catch hold of your emotions, take a breath and continue to play. And it's a great test of what, of putting into use these techniques.
0: I love to – I remember part of the story was that he he walks people through in advance what to expect. And, oh, there will be a screen between you and the judges. And then, of course, when they walk in, there's no screen. And then, if I recall correctly, people are answering their cell phones in the middle of the person's performance. I mean it's just like everything that can go wrong. And part part of what I teach on the sales side for people is, look, you need to be prepared for what could likely come up with a prospect so that when it comes up, you're not freaked out, but instead you're thinking to yourself, ah, that happened. I know how to deal with things when that happens. I just do this. And I think that gets back to kind of that, that pre-routine that says, okay, here's how I prepare for this meeting. Here's how I rehearse just like performers do. You're not going to have a surgeon who comes in who's never even thought about the surgery and says, oh, we'll just figure it out
1: along the way. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I, Try to separate this stuff out into things that are more substantive practice that are um, not about sort of just a mental – technique but so here's an example so um michael phelps when he was training for the olympic swimming events one of the things his coach would occasionally have him do was practice what would happen if his goggles came off during a race you know his water rushes into his eyes very uncomfortable feeling um so occasionally they would do this drill and in, in their swimming practice where they did this in fact in one of his gold medal olympic races his goggles failed and filled with water and he won the race even though he couldn't see so that 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 to me is not just mental preparation. That's actually something that makes a ton of sense if you're a swim team coach. You know, if you're a football team, you need to practice against the two point conversion. That's sort of actually the substance of what it is you're doing. The techniques in the book are. I'm much more focused on sort of quick hack-like techniques you can do in the last few minutes. Um, They're – if you're a salesperson, absolutely be prepared for things that can go wrong, objections, political dynamics in the room. I think that's part of being a good salesman. I think even if you've got all that stuff down, learning what to do with nerves, learning how to be a little bit more confident, learning how to manage your energy level before you go into the room, I think those are things that can only take that substantive practice and make you even better.
0: Yeah. And, and I, know that, I know that you talk about something where it's more of a focus on inputs or the difference between the focus on inputs, um, you know, the actions and tasks versus the outcomes of winning. And there's a discussion you have about that. So is that something you can talk about a little bit as well?
1: Sure. There's a famous psychologist at Stanford named Carol Dweck uh, who wrote a book called Mindset a bunch of years ago. And a lot of people cite her research because it really is um, uh, important when you talk about motivation. It's important when you talk about and think about not only the words you use when you're trying to motivate yourself but when you're trying to motivate other people. You know, if you're coaching a little league team um, and you want to, you know, Encourage people to do their best, to use the techniques that you've been working on in practice. Uh, you tend not to get great results if all you focus on is the score and on winning. So that's a, a model of focusing on the things you can control, which are those inputs, and be a little bit less control about the outcomes because some of that stuff is out of our control the same way the Powerball lottery is. Um, you know, Try to focus on the things you can control, not the things you can't.
0: Yeah, so it's, so it's almost more – Look, you know, if I'm, if I'm walking into a meeting with somebody, I can't think to myself, well, how do I make sure I close this sale? How do I make sure that this, that this uh, prospective employee takes the position but more, okay, so what do I need to do? I need to make sure they're comfortable. What am I doing to help ensure – what are the actions I'm taking to ensure that they are comfortable? Um, I need to make sure they know that I'm listening to them. So how, what are the tasks or activities I can do to convey that I'm listening to them? Is that kind of more what you mean?
1: Yeah. Let me give you a really strange example that I heard last week. I thought it was hysterical. So I was talking to a sales guy who uh, has to go into situations, and he'll often do a first meeting by phone or by Skype, and we were talking about what he does before he gets on that line or that video call with a prospect. And he said, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed to tell you this, but I have this weird ritual and he, he gave me the backstory. He said, my family moved when I was a junior in high school. So we went. I went into this new high school, and I was only in that school for about 18 months because you know we moved when I was almost done with high school. And he said, near the end of my senior year, my classmates voted me the king of the prom. And I have this crown in my office that I was given when I was 18 years old when I was elected the prom king. And he said, before I make a sales call, at a minimum, I just gaze at it for a minute or so and sometimes I'll actually put it on and he says that sounds really hokey but it reminds me that I have this incredible ability to connect with people very quickly. That I moved into the school, I didn't know anybody, and in a relatively short period of time, they voted me one of the most popular kids in the class. And he said that's the kind of thought I want to have in my mind when I'm first about to get on the phone with somebody to make a sales call, that I'm an incredible connector of people. And that crown is just a visual sort of superstitious reminder that helps him summon that emotion up. Yeah, and his last name wasn't Smalley, right? This isn't a Saturday Night Live skit, right? <laughs> it does sound like that, and I, you know, I definitely recognize that. You know, there were there are lots of clips from The Office that you could parody in terms of motivational speeches or trying to get people to feel sort of warm and fuzzy. Um, but you know, we are humans, and our emotions do matter, and they do affect the way we perform. So I think finding small ways to tweak them and to turn those dials, um, there is a nice return on that investment.
0: And what did you find in terms of like if sales managers or CEOs are trying to get their teams pumped up, what are some of the things that you found work especially well? And what are some of the myths of things that maybe don't work so
1: well? So I read a whole chapter on this in the book, and it was actually one of the most fun chapters I worked on. I looked at these pep talks or these motivational speeches in three different areas. I looked at sports, like the pregame locker room speech. I looked at military, you know, pre-combat kind of speeches. And then I looked at sales context in business. And what was interesting was I found research in each of the three areas, but as often happens in academia, the sports speech researchers had never heard of the military ones and the military people didn't know about the business. So there was all these researchers looking at the same thing, but not knowing about the others. But when you actually dive into it, there was tons. Of similarity and overlap in it, the three things that I took away from them were that number one, some part of a speech is going to focus on the nuts and bolts of direction giving, the strategy. You know, here's here's the value proposition we want you to focus on in the sales talk today. Here's the objections you're likely to hear and think about overcoming them, and here's what we want to use for a close, like the actual sort of you know offensive or defensive strategy if you're in a sports setting. So that's number one. Number two. Empathy is very important in these things. Using language and words that helps the team or the followers feel a direct personal connection with the leader, making it clear you care. It can be as simple as thanking them as focusing on a few people who are outstanding performers. on just acknowledging that what you're asking them to do is hard. And then the third thing that these speeches tend to have in common is what they call meaning-making language. This is something that takes what can be sort of a small task that you're asking them to do and makes it seem bigger, connects it with some sort of larger, more important element or narrative. So if you're in a military context and you're trying to get a team of soldiers to take a hill, you might sort of connect that with a larger battle and the larger campaign that your country is involved in and connect it with the home front. So it's direction giving, empathy and mission making, meaning making. Those are the kind of things that I would try to use in a speech like that.
0: Yeah, the thing thing I found really interesting was, I think it was uh, General McChrystal's comment about Look, if we're doing multiple raids each night, you know, it's not about the pep talk because it kind of loses some of its thunder if you're giving the same talk or a different type of pep talk, you know, two or three times or five times a week.
1: Yeah, no question. There's two things really that that he's talking about there. So number 1 Frequency is important. So, if I used Malcolm Gladwell's keyboard every time I wrote, it would kind of lose its magic, lose its power. If a base, you know, Major League Baseball plays 160 odd games a year, if the manager gave a pep talk before every game, that would get pretty, you know, old and tiresome and cliched pretty quickly. So, um, you have to choose your spots in terms of how frequently you're going to ask people to, to really give everything from themselves. And number two, part of what McChrystal was saying is, when he was talking about going out every night, he was talking about running the Navy SEALs and the Delta Force, which are you know experienced, motivated soldiers who've been in the service for 15 or 20 years who are highly skilled, intrinsically motivated. They don't need to get up because they're just like super professionals. If he were talking to a bunch of 18-year-olds who had just enlisted, he'd give a very different kind of speech because they're probably more scared. They probably do need a little bit more motivation. So there's also the element of choosing your audience and tailoring your message to fit the experience, the motivations, the skill level of that audience.
0: And I'm going to tell our audience that if you want to hear about Carly Simon and the spanking um, ritual before um, some, some of her performances, you're going to have to pick up a copy of psyched up because we're not going to talk about it here. Cause you know, I don't, I, I'm just concerned about who I might get as followers if we include that in our interview today. So, uh, so we'll let, we'll let people, we'll let people use their imagination and uh, and get their copy for it. So in, in organizations where, where you've got individuals who need that level of motivation um, who are looking for that inspiration either for themselves or for their, for their teams. If you had one piece of advice for them, aside from read the book, cause there's a ton of different pieces of advice, um, what would you tell people to do to kind of get themselves or their team members psyched up for, you know, what might be, might not seem like the most exciting business situations?
1: Well, two things come to mind. So most of the people I talked with, whether they were athletic coaches, military people like McChrystal or sales leaders, people who whose job kind of requires them to give these kind of talks every so often, they all kind of evolved to have a formula that they use. McChrystal's was five parts, if I recall. It was, here's what I'm asking you to do. Here's why I think it's important. Here's think about what we've done together. um, Now go out and do it. So he had sort of a structure that he relied on every time. And that was true for whether people were in sales or in sports. So number one, try to find a formula that works for you. Number two, have some self-awareness about this. There are coaches or salespeople who are just not very good at this. And even if it's part of their job, they recognize that it's not really their strong suit. So sometimes they'll bring in somebody else, you know, the voice of a customer. You know, there's actually research that shows that, For a lot of different kinds of workers, rather than just hearing the boss get up and give a fiery speech, having them spend a little bit of time with customers whose lives are being changed by the product or service they're offering, that can be as effective or more effective than any pep talk. So if you're somebody who doesn't feel comfortable doing this, who doesn't feel it's in your strong suit, try to find a way to work around that.
0: Yeah. That's brilliant. So, so Dan, I'm sure in addition to people going out to Amazon getting a copy of Psyched Up, I'm sure people are going to want to know how to learn more about what it is that you're doing. Um, there's a ton of research I know that you guys share in uh, Harvard Business Review on this, and you've shared a lot of good content that's actually in the book on Harvard Business Review, and we'll share a lot of that information in the show notes. Um, what's the best way for people to learn more about what you're doing and connect with you?
1: So as you said, the book is the best place, but some other ideas are there's a website that has some information about the book. It's at www.psychedupthebook.com. My Twitter is at Dan McGinn. And on this pep talk idea, we actually put a full article in Harvard Business Review in July, August. It's available on the website. If you just Google on the phrase, the science of pep talks, it will come right up. And that has a lot of valuable information on how to execute this formula.
0: Yeah, you know, what it's always exciting that in the Harvard Business Review, you guys always have so much research and data backing things up. And the book is just consistent with that, where it's not a bunch of rhetoric or here's one observation I had, but you've got so much research in there. It's just it, it's there, there's so much data that every chapter is like, wow, that's a really interesting story. And seeing how that applies, I think will really help people and will help our audience. So uh, so I appreciate you coming on and sharing your wisdom with us, Dan.
1: Thank you. I enjoyed the conversation.
0: There's a ton of great information that Dan shared. Let me give you a quick 30-second recap of the key information I think you can use to apply to your business right away. And before I do, I just want to thank you for taking the time to post your review on iTunes, Stitcher, even the emails you send in. It really means a lot. So just real quickly with Dan, remember, the biggest mistakes people make is that they either don't have a plan or they focus on the downside risk instead of the upside potential remember that you may want to review kind of your greatest hits before going into a stressful situation. And you can reframe any type of situation from I'm anxious about this to I'm excited. And just that positive spin could make a big difference. And when it comes to pep talks, have a formula, you might give them some direction, share some empathy, and then share a broader meaning. And that can often inspire others. Remember this show gets its direction from you, the listener. If there's a guest you think I should have on the show, if there's a topic you want me to cover, just fire me a note to ian at ianaltman.com. Have an amazing week, add value, and grow revenue in a way everybody can embrace, even your customer.